Welcome to the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers Faculty of British Columbia podcast. We are a diverse coalition of Asian Canadian legal professionals. We promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals and the community. We foster advocacy, community involvement, legal scholarship, and professional development. The purpose of this podcast highlights the diverse and unique members of our community. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by DLD Financial Group, a full-service financial planning firm based in downtown Vancouver, BC, specializing in professionals and business owners. DLD Financial is a full-service financial planning firm based in downtown Vancouver, BC, and services clients in BC and Ontario. Since 1999, DLD Financial has been serving the legal profession and consists of three financial planners. Kelly, our guest today, entered the financial services industry in 2005 immediately after graduation from UBC. She holds the Certified Financial Planner designation and the Certified Cash Flow Specialist certification. Kelly is a member of the Industry Professional Association, Advocates, the Financial Advisors Association of Canada, and she is a five-year qualifier for the Million Dollar Roundtable, the Premier Association of Financial Professionals. She has been a long-standing Kiwanis Club of Vancouver member who has carved her niche in the organization by working extensively in the area of youth initiatives. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kelly. Thank you for having me. So um, diving into our very first topic, we like to start off on like a general note about financial literacy. So we're wondering, Kelly, how do you define financial literacy and what are the most important vocabulary terms we should be aware of as a legal professional? Financial literacy, it's a very, very broad term. I think personally, there should be a curriculum in high school because you can get a credit card once you turn 19. And if you don't understand what interest is, if you understand what compound interest is, and if you don't understand that you're supposed to at least pay your bills on time, one can get in trouble at a very early point in time. And by the time they graduate from post-secondary, it might be a little bit too late. So I would say just even very the very basics of what does it mean to have a bank account? What does it mean to put money onto a credit card? I mean, those are the basics. I mean, it may sound like common sense, but you'd be surprised to the level in which it's not common sense. So I personally feel that financial literacy and just even the basics should be learned at a much earlier age than adulthood. Thank you, Kelly. As a student who recently took the professional legal training course, there is one section of the course where we learn about assets and liabilities formula, as well as balance sheets. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those as well. Yeah. So assets are things that you own, typically things that you own that are of value. So things like your checking account, that's an asset. Things like an RRSP or a TFSA, right? So registered retirement savings plan tax-free savings account, or even your high-interest savings account. So those are monetary assets. What I just listed there are things that are of monetary value of things that typically appreciate in value. Homes, especially in Vancouver and Toronto, obviously, also arguably appreciate in value. That's also an asset. And then there are other assets like your car, which I argue is a depreciating asset. We're wondering generally as well, what are some good financial resources that you would recommend that we look into to improve our financial literacy? Yeah, so my professional association, FP Canada, they have a great consumer page that provides a lot of easy to digest pieces on financial literacy. And in fact, I don't know whether lawyers are aware of this, but November is actually Financial Literacy Month. 
So you'll, if you pay attention to the Globe and Mail, the Globe and Mail typically has several pieces of information on financial planning basics every November. So FP Canada has some great pieces. And coupled to that, Advocates, which is another professional association that I'm a member of, also has some great consumer resources that, again, also provide some uh, great pieces for your average consumer. So jumping off of that question, and I guess more specifically to a topic that would pertain more to me and Fiona's situation, we'd like to talk a bit more about student debt. So a recent survey in Ontario found that most law students are in debt and graduates owe on average more than $83,000 by their final year of law school. And many finance their studies through a combination of government loans, grants, and private loans, such as lines of credit. And when they graduate, they're forced to take higher paying urban jobs to service their debt. And the clumping of lawyers in big cities means smaller communities and smaller legal issues get ignored, contributing to Canada's access to justice crisis. We're hoping in our discussion today that we can cover student debt, the importance of planning early on, and how to put together an effective financial plan to tackle this debt after graduation. So we are wondering if you can share generally with us about the importance of financial planning as it pertains to student debt. Okay. So typically by the time a client comes to me, they already have the debt. Okay. So because that's typically when they're trying to seek financial advice to try to figure out what their best path forward is. So by the time they come to me, typically a client may already have some government student debt and or a professional student line of credit through one of the major institutions or maybe even some private family loan debt. So in terms of how and whether one should pay back sooner than later, I know you're not going to like this, but I'm going to say it depends. There is no cookie cutter solution in terms of the best way to pay it off, because depending on the interest rate, the cost of living with respect to where the client resides, whether it's government debt or private loan debt, they're all going to get different recommendations. It's not uncommon that I have clients who are partners at law firms who still have government student debt because they get a tax credit with that. So they're in no hurry to pay that off. I think, especially as Asians, the mentality is debt is no good. But the reality is one will typically have to deal with debt throughout the course of their lifetime. And from a financial planning standpoint, we just want to make sure that the debt that one has is good debt and not bad debt. So I do consider student loan to be an investment in themselves as lawyers that you will eventually make more and more money. If that's your driver, there are exceptions to that. And I've seen that among my clientele over the past, you know, 13, 14 years that I've been doing this. But definitely, I will say one's plan will highly depend on the type of debt they have, how much they make, what are their obligations. And then based on those factors, we can then make a appropriate recommendation in terms of whether they can be aggressive or they should pay as scheduled, or they can pull back. So I have a follow-up question to that, Kelly. So I know that effective February 19, 2019, the interest rate that was charged on all BC government-issued student loans were eliminated, but interest was continued to be charged on the Canada student loan portion of Canada BC integrated student loans. Taking that into account, do you think it would be more prudent for a student such as Joni and myself to probably pay off our you know professional line of credit first if we have that followed by the student loans? Or again, does it depend? It depends on what the interest rates are and what your cash flow situation is. 
that's why there's no one answer. Like I have situations among my clientele where I'm telling one person to go, yeah, no, you need to tackle that. And the other one, I'm going, no, you can take your time. So it depends on how much they're making, what their career trajectory looks like, what their existing job situation looks like, what are their obligations. In a perfect world, everyone would want to pay off their loans because it's quite the burden to hold on to it. But I think as people mature into their careers, sometimes people might use debt to their advantage if done correctly and if they have a strong foundation. But it's not uncommon for students to come out and want to be super aggressive at tackling it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I have quite a few clients whom I met at the beginning of their careers, and we didn't start working together until they paid off their debt. So that's why I said it highly depends on their situation. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much. This was all very helpful tips. And I'm sure that many students who are listening in will have lots to take away. Obviously, at FacultyC, we don't just have student members. We also have other more senior members who are further along in their career and Some might think about buying into partnership or even starting one's own firm. And so let's talk about buying in for partnership first. We're thinking of, hypothetically speaking, let's say a lawyer is buying in for a partnership that serves wide-ranging clients. How much does it typically cost to buy in for a partnership? The cost of buying into a partnership will depend on the size of the firm. Okay, so whether you're in a mid-sized firm or at a national firm, the price to buy-in will significantly differ. But the one good thing is that it is seldom that one will have to find all that money out because typically most law firms will have financing arrangements already in place so that it enables the lawyer to be able to buy in reasonably. And in terms of how one would actually fund the buy-in will vary. I have clients who have um, a certain amount withheld from every draw that they take to pay off that partnership. I have clients where they have a loan, a secured loan from the bank uh, that funded their entire buy-in and they've decided for their situation, it makes sense to pay interest only. So that's why there's no one way. It really does depend on the type of firm and the size of the firm that you're at. But generally speaking, if the firm is offering you partnership, they want you to succeed and they will work with you to make sure that buying into the partnership is not a financial burden that will cost you your livelihood. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I know you had just said that there is no one size fits all approach to this, but typically, I guess, among your own clients, what's the most common financing plan like for buying in for a partnership? It's a, I would say 50, 50, there's a certain amount withheld and somewhere they just pay interest only. So I would say the smaller firms will typically want to have the funds withheld, the smaller to mid-sized firms, and the larger firms are more comfortable with you. They're able to get the loan, right, for the partner buy-in, and therefore everything's already in place. They've been doing it for years, so therefore they just pay the, the deal is directly with the bank, where a new partner just simply pays the bank. I see. Thank you, Kelly. Could you talk a little bit about the most important considerations for a lawyer who is considering this option? What would some of them be? They have to like the firm that they're at. Um, because obviously as a partner, your job is no longer just to be a great lawyer. There is an expectation for you to acquire business. At the end of the day, why do partners get compensated the way they do? And it's because they bring more to the table than just good legal expertise. When you're a partner, the whole point is they want you to increase the profits of the firm. And you have to figure out if you're going to be able to do that and if you're up to that challenge. Because if you're not, then you're going to be miserable. You'd be making great money, but you'd be quite miserable. 
And I, I do have clients who did pursue partnership and decided a few years later that it wasn't for them. And there's nothing wrong with that because sometimes you don't know until you try it. Or sometimes they leave and then they realize the grass actually isn't greener on the other side and then they go back. So there's no one path. I do have clients who knew all along from the beginning that partnership was what they wanted. And that's fantastic. But for the majority of lawyers, they don't know until they actually try. And that's how we're able to get, or I guess, spread the wealth in terms of legal expertise across all industries. Because if everyone was in private practice, where would we find all those fantastic in-house counsels or crown counsels and all that? Definitely. Yeah, I think it all comes down to what everyone prioritizes in their life. Going for partnership for others, maybe uh, a bit more work-life balance, different type of work arrangement, and et cetera. And I actually was curious, in terms of buying in for partnership, are there any risks that partners may be exposed to, for example, if a firm undergoes a merger? Because I know that the legal landscape, especially in downtown Vancouver, does tend to change quite rapidly. So I was wondering if there are some extra risks or things that we should be cautious of. Well, it depends if you're an equity partner or income partner. For the sake of some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the difference between equity and income partner, could you just really quickly talk about the difference between the two? Yeah, of course. So income partner, we like to joke that is a glorified associate who gets paid more and you get the title partner. <laughs> In law firms where they do have that structure, it's like those two to three years where you can actually prove yourself to go, hey, I do deserve to be an equity partner. And this is how I'm going to prove to you that to the public, I'm a partner, but I do need to put in a little bit more work to show that I'm worthy to actually be able to share into more profits and have some say in terms of how the firm's direction proceeds in the future. So that would be an income partner. Not every firm will have that structure. Sometimes some firms make it more strict for people to become partners and just put them right into equity partnership. So with equity partnership, it gets a little bit more complicated because now you're effectively becoming one of the owners at your law firm. And what ends up happening is when you're an associate, you get paid a certain amount and you know that whatever you're paid, you don't have to worry about the law firm taking that money back because what gets paid is actually yours. The way you're paid, it's determined by whatever formula or agreement is among the partners on based on our firm's profitability, based on the financials, here's what we feel is a reasonable amount to pay each partner. They call them draws. They call them draws. And it's usually not a large amount. Typically be larger than what an associate would get just to recognize the fact that, hey, you are a partner. But it's really just prepaying them so that they can function in their lives. And then what ends up happening and why people love equity partnership is that one to two times a year, they get this really nice lump sum to top them up and sharing in the profits of the law firm. That's the reward at the end. And that's why people love equity partnership. So we understand the difference between income partner and equity partner, and not every firm will have that structure. So if you're an equity partner, then I would hope that you're involved in those discussions because it ends up being a board decision to go, are the majority of the partners going to agree with this? Based on the profits of the law firm this past year, can we maintain these draws that one is getting each month? Is it sustainable? Do we need to uh, hold back. So last year was a great example. I've had several clients who had their draws reduced because everyone's worried about their balance sheets. Everyone's worried whether the profitability of the law firms would be affected by the pandemic. For sure. Thank you, Kelly. How do partners get paid and how often do they get paid? The draws typically come monthly from what I see among my clients as a partner, because you are considered as a business owner, you are responsible for making sure that your taxes are remitted. You've almost become a contractor, <laughs> your own benefits, all that kind of stuff. So anything that was taken care of for you as an associate, as a 
equity partner, that's now all on your plate. That's your responsibility. With respect to the distributions, that will depend on the firm. Some firms do it once a year. Some firms do it a couple times a year. That's when they reconcile to go, well, based on the percentage of ownership or whatever formula that they have at the firm, this is how much each partner will get. And that's effectively sharing of the profits above and beyond the draws that they've received on a monthly basis. Their draws, that's not guaranteed. Like in a worst case scenario, if they drew out more than what the profits would have been, there is a small chance they have to repay it. So if the firm did really poorly, there is a very small chance that they might owe the firm money. I think it's very much like when you're managing a corporation, directors and officers have a responsibility to make sure that there are enough funds to keep the corporation running. And I think in a very similar vein, this is what applies to partners as well. In regards to starting one's own firm, in your experience, what is the demographic of lawyers who start their own practice and what year of call do they tend to be in? And how often do lawyers choose this path? Mm -hmm. Great question. So definitely mid to large firm, there's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of logistics, and sometimes a lot of lawyers are entrepreneurs as well. And if they realize, especially if they're at those firms where it's eat what you kill, they're like, why am I giving X amount of percentage to this firm when I can just do it myself and keep the majority of the profits? So that realization usually comes a few years in. I will say it is seldom that people right off the bat out of law school or out of articling would start their own firm because where do you start? So it's it's not unusual that people will work in a mid to large firm setting for a few years before they actually start their own venture. And when they do start their own firm, how much debt do lawyers typically incur when they choose to open their own firm? And what are some business considerations they should keep in mind? Yeah, so it depends. A lot of my clients who started their own firms actually saved up some capital. So a lot of them already had their own law corporations to begin with because they were in firm situations where they had the actualization to go, I already have my own law corporation. Why am I not renting my own shop? Why am I doing this for someone else? So a lot of times they do already have some saved up capital. And for those who don't, they would try to secure, let's say, a business line of credit just to be able to fund certain startup costs because you do need to have an IT infrastructure. You do need to have a certain number of computers. You do need to have certain uh, servers, especially given the IT security is a big thing. You're dealing with very confidential information and then you need to figure out staffing. You need to work out a budget. I hate to use the word budget, but in fact you do. And I usually give my clients a template on here are all the uh, considerations you need to figure out before taking the plunge? Have you factored in what it's going to cost to have uh, a paralegal, a legal assistant? If you do have articling students, are you going to be able to pay them? And what percentage are you going to keep? Associates, what kind of structure do you have? Is it another eat what you kill type of structure? Or are you going to pay them a reasonable salary so that they can work with ease? So they have to make a lot of decisions. Starting your own shop, you have to have the legal expertise. But more importantly, one has to have an entrepreneurial mindset. Without the entrepreneurial mindset, being a good lawyer is unfortunately not good enough because one may think that I'm a fantastic lawyer. I'm going to go start my own shop. Then they realize that, hey, without like all the support that I used to get at the firm, it's actually really hard because now you're actually doing the stuff that normally a paralegal would do or that a legal assistant would do. And now you're figuring out that, hey, I'm actually not charging enough now because I'm doing work that I could pay someone a lot less to do. 
you have to be a good business person. Mm -hmm. And going back to uh, the question about debt, we might not have an exact figure on how much debt these lawyers might incur, but typically if you were to estimate, say, three lawyers and two support staff in downtown small office, how much do you estimate that would take? Like assuming that there's no capital to begin with? Yeah. I would say 15 to 100,000. Okay. Because you got to make sure that people are paid and we don't know how long it's going to take for the firm to ramp up. These are all really good points. I really echo the, the point about entrepreneurial spirit. So all very good points. Thank you. And then, you know, pivoting to another section that we had in mind today for our podcast, how would you suggest financial allocation between different accounts when you're saving for a down payment? With respect to saving up for a down payment, Generally speaking, I will put together a comprehensive financial plan for clients. Devise a plan and based on their cash flow situation, first of all, are they optimizing their cash flow situation? What is their time horizon in which they want to purchase? And then I would often tell them, just because your mortgage planner tells you can borrow that much money doesn't mean you should take it. So I always say work with me first before they go to the mortgage professional, because my job is actually to go based on your overall situation. Here's what you can afford. And then I'll also illustrate what their situation will look like after they have their mortgage in place. Because at the end of the day, I don't think one would be very happy if all they had left afterwards is no money to be able to set aside because everything else went towards the mortgage or even just the cost of owning a place. So for example, actually just before this session here, I was speaking with an individual who seemed a bit shocked when I outlined what their monthly housing costs will be after their pre-sale closes. So right now they're paying obviously very reasonable rent, but effectively once their pre-sale closes in a couple of years time, their housing costs are going to double at least. So one of the biggest comments among my clients is they want to be able to own a home and not lose their livelihood along the way. They want to be able to own a home, build equity, have a place to call their own, not pay for someone's mortgage, have some stability with their living situation, especially given the the pandemic that we're going through right now. But at the same time, does it make sense to own a home at the expense of everything else? Does it make sense to put it off for a little bit if one doesn't have enough of a down payment? And with respect to your question about how people save for it, I'm sure most people would know that there's things like the first-time home buyer's plan. That's the $35,000 that one can withdraw from their RSP towards the purchase of their principal residence. As long as they have the RSP contribution room, typically among my clients, it's a very common strategy that we'll use, assuming that they have the RSP contribution room. In terms of other ways, it depends on if they want to use their TFSA. For those of you who may not have clarity on what that is, it's after-tax money going in, it grows on a tax shelter basis, and it comes out tax-free. So in situations where one is able to save above and beyond towards their down payment, typically people will want to use their TFSAs for things that will grow a lot more over the long term. So they end up saving more in taxes. Because typically when one is saving for a down payment, they're not going to take a lot of risk. You have to kind of weigh the pros and cons, depending on how much room one has or how much cash flow one has, what instruments would make sense in their unique situation. Those are all really good points. And thank you so much again for going through all of that with us. We'd like to jump to FACOBC's mandate and financial literacy in general. How do you think financial planning differs across cultural and ethnic lines? And do you think it's important as a financial advisor to acknowledge these differences? 
Most definitely. I mean, there's no cookie cutter way. And I have a very, very diverse clientele. One of the things that I do before I meet with the client is I research them, their background. I won't know until I actually speak with them, but definitely there are differences across cultures. Some cultures place different values on different things. I have situations where people have no desire to own a home. I have situations where owing debt on a mortgage is a no-go. So that's why it's really important, not even just from a culture standpoint, I think it's just personally to really understand the value systems of an individual, regardless of their cultural background. I'll try to do some research to see who I'm talking to, who they know, because generally people hang out with like-minded individuals, right? The peers that we hang out with would have a bit of an influence on how we look at things, money included. I often have clients joke that they got my contact from their lawyer WhatsApp group because my name came up saying, I have a person, you need to talk to my person that's in their law school graduate WhatsApp group. Their biases, for sure. But I think at the end of the day, as long as one is able to make decisions based on fact, it's definitely going to be a learning process along the way. And as a planner, I have to be sensitive to all these things and not be judgmental. There's no right or wrong. People come to a professional because they want to know more and they want to know better. So our job when it comes to financial literacy is to assume they know nothing. And I always think there's always this bias. They think that if I'm talking to a senior partner at a firm or if I'm talking to a very seasoned business owner, that they'll know a lot. They don't. They're very good at what they do. But when it comes to areas that are outside of their expertise, generally speaking, I have to pretend like they know nothing. Yeah. And that kind of segues nicely into one of our other questions is when in their career should a lawyer seek advice from a financial advisor? I would say as early as possible, because just because you seek a consultation with a financial planner at the beginning of your career doesn't mean you're going to commit at that time. Because I've had situations where I did send people off and said, based on your situation, here are a couple of takeaways that you can do in the meantime, come back in two years. And in other situations, they were ready to go because they were in a financial situation where there were planning opportunities. So I think until you actually speak with someone, whether it be formally or informally, I think it's a worthwhile conversation. Most planners won't charge you for that conversation because all you want to know is, does it make sense to do that now? Or should I work on whatever I need to work on and consider this in two or three years time? That's an important mindset to have. It takes an individual a lot of courage to acknowledge the fact that they have debt and they need help from a financial planner. So I think taking that first step is really something. How often do you think someone should come to you for like financial planning advice? Like a new client contemplating whether or not they need the services of a financial I would say annual check-ins is a good thing if they're not sure, because Mm -hmm. a lot can change in a year. If they wanted to have an initial conversation with a financial planning professional, I'm happy to have that initial consultation because generally speaking, we want to make sure that clients are ready. We're not going to take on clients who aren't mentally and emotionally ready because it's not a good use of anyone's time. But I want to make sure that whoever I speak with have a couple of takeaways if they are indeed not ready yet that they can work on in over the next year, six months to a year. Six months to a year is usually a good check-in point, and then you can assess. I see. Plan to seed and kind of keep some considerations in mind and then come back and check in when they feel more mentally and um, emotionally ready. Yeah. I mean, another thing too is ask to get on the financial professional's mailing list. A lot of times, if a client isn't ready to come on, I often say, you know what, I'll just add you to my newsletter list. And whenever they receive the newsletter, it may be a prompt for them to consider going, what's my situation like these days? And if we're interested in joining this newsletter, how can we do that? Let the financial professional know 
provide them with your email address and they just add you to the list. Most of my colleagues, we publish four times a year. So clients will typically get a newsletter four times a year. We'll publish it on our website. Um, we'll also let people know about webinars that we host. I have a lot of people who join the webinars who aren't clients. But then to my surprise, I'll, I'll get an email in the blue going, oh yeah, I attend a few of your webinars. Like I'm ready now. Right? I'm ready to have that conversation. So for us, it's honestly just a matter of keeping people informed, providing education and just being open. People can't feel scared. I don't want people to feel scared. It's not meant to be threatening. Anyone in my profession, we do it because we love what we do. And we have a desire to help people's, people feel better about what they're doing with their money. Do you have any upcoming webinars planned? We do those webinars quarterly as well. And a lot of people count on the recording, but we do post it on our website. Our final question of the day is, as a financial planner, how do you think financial planning, becoming financially literate, as well as educating those in our community, relates to FACOBC's greater mission of promoting equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian lawyers and the broader community? I would say if the lawyers themselves are financially literate, it will benefit the greater society because lawyers are considered as trusted professionals, especially in the Asian community. A lot of times people don't know that they can approach a financial planner. Sometimes people think, oh, I have to have X amount of dollars before I can speak with a financial planner. But if the lawyers themselves who are considered as trusted professionals are themselves engaged in a financial planning professional relationship, then they can actually speak to it personally and genuinely be able to give guidance, be well-informed because guess what? You never know when someone's going to ask you for off the cuff advice. For sure. I think the Asian community really thrives on uh, word of mouth referrals. So Kelly, thank you very much for your time today. Once again, today's episode is brought to you by DLD Financial Group, a full service financial planning firm based in downtown Vancouver, BC, specializing in professionals and business owners. If anybody has any questions, like feel free to head over to their website, dldfinancial.com. And you can definitely speak with our guest today, Kelly Ho, and I'm sure she will offer you the best assistance. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time. Thank you for tuning into the FacalBC podcast. Visit our website at facalbc.ca and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at FacalBC. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest. If you have guest speaker suggestions, please email us at membership at facalbc.ca.